Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast. A podcast hosted by two childhood best friends dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer, a midwife, a current day pop culture know-nothing, but nobody puts baby in a corner when it comes to the pop culture of my youth. And I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's still not over how my so-called life left us hanging. Welcome to the world of the emotionally mature, where some of us live and some of us don't. If all you need is a couple smokes, a cup of coffee, and a little bit of conversation, this episode is for you. Grab your big gulp, kids. Today, we're getting really real with 1994's Gen X classic, Reality Bites, starring Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke, and Ben Stiller. But before we get too deep, if you're into the pod, we'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We're also pretty social on Instagram and Facebook at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. Kate, today is the day you have been waiting your entire pod career for. Your favorite film, Reality Bites. I'm so excited. I love this movie. (laughs) Still, all these years later. Well, that's really a testament. I mean, how old is it? It came out the same year we graduated high school, so... 27 years. So yeah, 27 years these people have been by my side. You moved out in 94. Yes, I did. Okay, and I remember your cute little apartment and you saying, I recorded Reality Bites and you had it on VHS. I can remember watching that many times in my little apartment. When I go back and I look at it, I think part of why I watched it is that it was sort of comforting. I was not really prepared to be living on my own. I didn't really know what I was doing. In the film, they're what? Like they're 22. They're 22. Like you don't know what you're doing. And so it was almost like having like older siblings to sort of like guide the way, (laughs) like what it would be like to be, you know, a young person living on their own. So I think that I found it really comforting uh, while I was alone, trying really poorly to be a grown up, (laughs) Feeling like an imposter. Right. I remember just being there and we would just be bullshitting about the world and like all the things we were going to do and all of our hopes and dreams. And it was a weird time because it all felt so very possible. And yet it was so terrifying. Yeah. Like I did not know how to adult at that time at all. Like I can remember something happened with my car and like, I didn't know what to do. Like I was like, I don't, I don't know. Because when you're that age, you just haven't learned how to cope in the world. And it's hard to remember once you get to this point in adulthood that like there was a time that you just didn't know how to do stuff. There was a time any little thing just drove me to like hysterics. Like I just would break down, did not know how to deal. And so when it comes to like being an adult and functioning in the real world, it takes a lot of practice as we can see from these characters. So that's why I liked them so much because it just sort of felt like a little bit of guidance for my very young self sort of. So I think that's why this is really near and dear to my heart. Also Ethan Hawke, but. Oh, Ethan Hawke. And just that feeling of not being so alone in all the uncertainty. Right. And they were also like very cool in my mind, right? Like I I really, I think I very much related to this uh, struggle between wanting to have your sort of independence and your own free thinking way of being, but then also the realities of, and I have to pay rent. Uh, And so sometimes you do have to sort of travel into this world of uh, I, I maybe I'd rather not do this, but if I stick entirely to, you know, these principles, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. So then what good does that do me? Right. I think as we get older, right, we think of her opening speech at her graduation and right. she's sort of giving her parents' generation a hard time for abandoning their revolution. Right. For, like selling out. Yeah. For like right. sneakers. Or right. <laughs> And yet, I think that that is something that every generation sort of has to reckon with is that like, well, at some point you do want a 401k you know? <laughs> um, and you do want the sensible car. You do. One that starts every time. Right. And like some of us hold out a little longer than others before we dive into that like sensible life. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a struggle and I think it's 
a process that Gen X has had to go through uh, that, you know, we can't be like the cool, idealistic kids forever. Not forever. And what's so fascinating about this is that this film was written by Helen Childress as a 19-year-old freshman at USC. There's a line in the film where it talks about, like, I thought I was going to be somebody by the time I was 23. Okay, so... This film was actually released by the time she was 24 years old, which is kind of amazing. The film originally premiered January 1994 at Sundance, and it was released in wide release February 18, 1994. Now, the budget was $11.5 million, and at the box office, it made 33.4, which seems pretty good. Right. That's like th- almost three times what it costs to make. It was difficult to find a studio to release it. They had issues with a couple of studios before it was finally released by Universal Pictures. And that was because the studios were kind of unsure. Singles was released a couple years before this, and it didn't do amazing. Like, I think now, you know, in pop culture history, Singles goes down as a great film. And it's, we talk about this all the time on the pod. It's found its place in nostalgia. But at the time, it didn't do that well. And so the studios are like, we don't need a Gen X film. Right. Like those Gen Xers, they don't show up to watch these movies and make us a bunch of money. (laughs) They don't. And they were trying to like appeal to the 18 to 34 year old crowd. Well, and to be fair, if you think so, they're trying to appeal to 18 to 34 year olds. Honestly, if I'm even 30, even if I'm in my late 20s, I'm not interested in what these guys are doing. Right. Because I'm past that. Like, that's not my phase of life. It's not interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, by the time I was 34, I was married. I had a house. I had a mortgage. I had two children. Like, I was just in a very different place. And yeah, like, I don't know that I was interested in people smoking out on a couch. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I was into that at 34. If that movie had come out at that time, I would have just been like, eh, whatever. Um, So I do think that they did have a narrow range of people this film was going to appeal to. But I think for the people that it did appeal to, it's very beloved, but that doesn't necessarily make dollars at the box office. Right. So this was Ben Stiller's directorial debut. And the film's producers saw the pilot episode for the Ben Stiller show and asked Stiller to direct it. And he actually worked for like a year with Helen Childress to better develop the script. There were over 70 drafts of the script. And yeah, Childress kind of used her friends and their experiences as her inspiration for the film. But interestingly, Childress never wanted to be a screenwriter. She actually wanted to be a poet. But again, sort of like Lainey in the film, she realized poets don't make any money. I need to make some money. Right. How am I going to make some money off of what I write? And so she found a way. I mean, there's sort of like a meta aspect to this film, right? Very much so. Okay, so for the role of Lainey, Lelena, Ryder was drawn to the role because she'd been doing a lot of period pieces at the time, and she wanted something more contemporary because, quote, I really wanted to wear blue jeans for a change. And if that's not a reason, I don't know what is. Right. She had some comfy pants in that, <laughs> in that film. And she did also say, I think my character is very close to what I probably would have ended up as if I hadn't become an actress. Yeah, I I can see that. I can see it too. Yeah. And she really, really wanted Ethan Hawke in the role of Troy. Did they ever date? I don't think so. She really fought for him. And she had said, a few other names came up, but I really had my heart set on Ethan. And I actually didn't even know Ethan either. But I've always felt like, I don't know, Ethan and I have a connection. He started really young like me. We both had obsessions with Salinger. We listened to the same music. He was someone who I just really felt an affinity with. And I felt like their chemistry on screen was perfect for this film. Totally. They work well together. And I I do think, good choice, Winona. She can have a second career as a casting agent. Right. I felt like Ethan Hawke was perfect for the role. He really was. Like, he was able to play the nuance of it without feeling really over the top, which I think is a skill. Like, I would argue that perhaps River Phoenix, had he been around, could have pulled that off. Mm -hmm. But not many young actors, especially because a lot of the other characters are a little bit caricature-y, you know? And it would be easy 
for him to have gone down that route. I can't say enough good things about him. I might have a little crush on him to this day. If we're going to just be talking about all the ways in which we love him. I mean, I really fell in love with Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. That's my peak. Right. That's what I mean. Like you kind of follow him through all these films. And at some point we'll talk more about Troy Dyer, but I sort of blame Troy Dyer for the men that I tend to fall for. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think Troy Dyer was really like the man that we all fell for as youngsters. Right. And some of us grew out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us didn't. And some of us just keep hoping that we're going to end up with that ending from Reality Bites. (laughs) I have a lot to say about that, actually. (laughs) For the role of Vicky, played by Janine Garofalo, Parker Posey was up for the role, as was Anne Heche and Gwyneth Paltrow. And I could see Parker Posey in that role. Yeah. But I say Parker Posey or Janine Garofalo. I do think Janine Garofalo owned it. Her, like amount of kind of sarcasm and wryness was Mm -hmm. just perfect. It was. So Ryder really fought for her in that role. And she ended up getting fired from the film before filming even began because she just wasn't really like respecting Stiller. And she just wasn't taking the job seriously. And she's gone on record and said, like, I was really unprofessional. I was like Hmm. sassy. I was like, I don't want to do it. I'm not in the mood. Like she just, there was a lot of pushback and Stiller's like, I don't need to deal with this. Yeah, I don't need this. I have a movie to make. And he basically fired her and Ryder came in and was like, no, you got to give her another chance. Come on. She's perfect for the role, whatever. And she was, but it doesn't mean that it was easy. Yeah. And for the role of Sammy, Noah Wiley was considered, but the part ended up going to Steve Zahn and he said... I'm really grateful to Ben because at that time he had been just auditioning a lot. He was doing theater and um, just like all the callbacks and not getting roles. It was really frustrating. But he was saying like, I remember him, Stiller, feeling so bad that I had to sit in the trailer so much. I had so much trailer time, but I loved it. I was getting paid. Are you kidding? Sitting in my trailer with my dog? And he bought me my first guitar. And because of that, I learned how to play guitar. Steve's odd. Yeah, he's great. So the film actually got some mixed reviews. Roger Ebert said in his review in 1994, what unwritten law prevented the makers of Reality Bites from observing that their heroine can't shoot video worth a damn, that their hero is a jerk, and that their villain is the most interesting person in the film? What are your thoughts on that? He's not the generation they were targeting. <laughs> okay, he's <laughs> so, not. That's, that's totally fair. So do I care that he didn't get it? No. I think we can all agree. I mean, I know as much as you love this film, you can be objective for a moment. Their heroine can't shoot video worth a damn. That video is is shit. But did you see how big that video camera was? Okay, still, (laughs) that was some shaky Blair Witch bullshit recording. It was not good. And their hero is a jerk. Thoughts? I mean... He is. He is. He is. But this is where we're going to disagree. And here we understand my whole dating history. (laughs) Tell me what's redeeming about Troy Dyer. But he has a heart of gold. (laughs) Really? Yeah. He's sensitive. He's not acting like a jerk because he's a jerk. He's acting like a jerk. Because he's damaged? Because of trauma? Yes. And so what? You're just supposed to be okay with that? Well, clearly I'm not the person to ask him. (laughs) Love him enough to turn him around? I mean, so this is a thing, right? Like this is a challenge, I think, when you're somebody like Lainey. Just saying, randomly, not from experience. (laughs) Um, I can't really explain it. Like if you fall in love with someone kind of for like the essence of who they are, and then their actions sometimes are really opposite of that. And you have to sort of reconcile that and decide at which point do you just say, I see who you are. And the damage that you have is causing you to behave so contrary to that, that I can't sort of hang around for it anymore. I don't know. There's not a lot of redeeming qualities to Troy throughout this film. I mean, other than the fact that They clearly have sexual chemistry. I've dated like many men who were remarkably like Troy Dyer. And I have sort of had that same experience that Lainey has of just feeling like, I don't know, you know, I mean, I like, I love that line where she's like, welcome to the world of the emotionally mature. Like, uh, like it's a nice place to visit. Michael lives here. 
And it's true. I've felt that. I've had that line go through my head. But if you're in love with Troy, I don't know, like Michael's a hard sell. (laughs) I actually don't think Michael's a hard sell. Oh, God, I think Michael's a really hard sell. But okay. I mean, he's not a bad person. He's not a bad person. He doesn't have that sort of gritty, I live and die by my principles kind of How's that working out for you, Troy Dyer? I mean, I don't know. Like, how is it working out for him? It's a struggle. At some point, he needs to make some choices, some hard choices. Like, he's like, I'm not going to spend 20 years working on the line like the man. I'm not going to do that. Okay, well, if you're not going to do that, Troy, what are you going to do? Because right now, you're living on someone's couch. Right. And I would argue that there is a spectrum between Troy and Michael, but it's not like Troy needs to grow up and turn into Michael. Oh, I agree with that. I don't think Troy could ever be Michael, but I also don't think Troy can continue being Troy. It's not going to work. No, long term, it's probably not going to work. But I guess the idea is that by the end of the film, he's sort of gone through some stuff and had some understandings. And that's why he comes back and stands in front of her. And it's like, all right, let's start. Okay. We disagree. We do. It's, it's, it's what makes the pod magic, y'all. <laughs> It makes it something. <laughs> okay. So, Lelena Laney is the valedictorian of her graduating class, and she's giving the valedictorian speech. And like you said, she's talking about, like, staying true to your ideals and principles, and this generation is going to be different. And she's like, how could we repair all the damage we inherited? And ultimately, she says the answer is simple. The answer is because she no longer has her index card. I don't know. And the crowd goes wild. Right. We're now on a rooftop. And this is when we get to see Lainey's mad video skills. Right. And they're drinking and they're smoking. And we get to see Vicky for the first time in her vintage flowered dress and platform sandals. Her style, I would liken it to like Daphne and Scooby-Doo. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, she's sort of like the 70s, like retro girl. I dig it. It looks cute on her. Yeah. And they're just having a good time. And like Lainey says, like, this is why we never got together. So we learn like, okay, these are two people who are clearly attracted to each other, but they don't have a romantic history. You know, they kind of like, what are you going to do now? And nobody really has a clear idea. Although I love the line about uh, dodging the student loans and the Columbia (laughs) record and tape people. Uh, I love that Vicky says, like in her little confessional, like my social security number was the only thing I really learned in college. And I'm like, same, same, Vicky. Remember how our social security (laughs) numbers used to be our student ID and they were printed on our student ID. Oh yeah. They were on everything. Like your social security number was not private. It just floated around the college campuses in the nineties. Oh yeah. They'd post your grades. Like (laughs) I have full social security number. Every paper I turned in in college had my full social security number on it. Yeah. And we wonder why identity theft is a problem. It started on college campuses. I'm convinced. Right. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I did not know my social security number going into college, but I sure as hell knew it by the time I left. Oh, for sure. One semester in, you're like, that's my number. (laughs) (laughs) So we see Lainey at a graduation dinner with Troy and both sets of her parents. Awkward. As a child of divorce, I feel this in a really big way. Even if your parents get along, it's not my favorite to have both sets of parents. It's just, I don't know, because you're like the common reason everyone's there. And it's sort of like all eyes on you. It feels like a lot of pressure. And she ends up getting a gas card from her dad. And he said he'll pay for gas for a year. I was like, that is a pretty sweet gift. But she doesn't seem very impressed. Well, also, you have to keep in mind that we're from Southern California. So gas for a year in Southern California, that is like a phenomenal gift. (laughs) Right? I mean, I think it is too. And she's also given her stepmom's used BMW. I feel like that was really generous. It was, but it was- Why did she poo at that gift? Because it was like a materialistic car. It was kind of ran, ran counter to all of the things that she believed in. And here, so here early on, we're getting this like push pull of this, like, here's reality. Like, here's your ideals, right? Like, I don't need a fancy car. I don't need whatever, but also I need to get to work and a car would make that easier. And here's somebody handing me one. So sort of trying to balance that. And so her solution is I'll keep the car until I can afford to get a different one. That seems pretty nice to me. 
And then we cut to like morning time and we see Troy leaving Tammy's house played by Renee Zellweger. Renee Zellweger. And yeah, he's not into her. He's not going to call her. He litters her number, which makes me hate him because I hate litterers. He just <laughs> threw that on the ground and I'm like, and now I hate you, Troy Dyer. <laughs> you just totally littered unnecessarily. <laughs> not because he's not going to call her after he Right, not her. because he's like, I'll call you. Just kidding. Right. Okay. And then we see a man leaving Vicky's bed before she wakes. We see her ultimately write in her little like diary book. His right. Name. Her list of her conquests. What number was he? 66. 66. That's a fair amount of partners. I mean, she's only what? 21? 22. 22? 22. 21, okay. 22. So, well, and do you also notice the dates? <laughs> she has the dates. So they're fairly close together. So okay. I think they're establishing that like, she's not one to have like a long relationship with somebody. Like these are really like one night stands that she's having. Um, okay. And we see Troy at his job. He works at the newsstand and he's reading a review of existential psychology and psychiatry. Because of course he is. For funsies, Katie. But that's, so this is the thing. Like this is, oh, like this is what's so hard. It's like that like angsty, like smart thinking guy. The Dylan (sighs) McKay of Reality Bites. Sort of. Like he's so much cooler than Dylan McKay. But it's that guy. It's that it's trope. That guy. It's it's kind of a trope. Uh, but it, yeah, it's my trope though. <laughs> Deep thinker man eats a Snickers. He doesn't think to pay for it. Right. So Lainey works at a TV show called Good Morning Grant. And Grant, the host, is an asshole. He's played yeah, by he John Mahoney. And he's the dad from Say Anything. Oh, he is. Yeah, he is. We meet Vicky at The Gap helping a customer. And she's wearing a sleeveless denim shirt and khaki shorts, which is very on brand and very different than her normal style. So see, Vicky has sort of navigated this challenge of like doing what needs to be done, even if it means you're wearing khakis and a denim shirt. And working at the Gap. (laughs) And like her kind of, you know otherwise outside of work personality, which is definitely not denim, uh, oversized, buttoned up to the neck and the (laughs) sleeves rolled up. It's so fun. (laughs) Roll them right up. Roll them right up. Liberating, isn't it? (laughs) I'm sure Vicky has her ideals and she has her dreams for the future that don't necessarily include working at The Gap, but it's working for right now and she's putting her whole self into it. Right. This is when we cut to Vicky and Lainey in Lainey's used BMW, grooving and singing and smoking to squeezes tempted by the fruit of another. And we meet Michael, Ben Stiller, in a newer convertible BMW. And they pull up next to him at a light. Actual map. He is fussing with a map. Yes. (laughs) He's conducting business on his very loud, very large car phone. And they look over at him and they're like, who's this asshole? Lainey's done with her cigarette and she flicks it out the window, which living in Southern California where there's just brush fires like all the time, it really upsets me when people do this. Yeah. When I was a smoker, I never flicked a lit cigarette out the window. so damn dangerous. Never. So she tosses out the butt and it ends up in his car. Oh my God. And he's like, oh shit. And he crashes into her. And in the next scene, we see her following him into his office. And he's like talking about how his lawyer is advising him. And he asks her if she has a lawyer. She's like, no, I don't have a lawyer. I don't even have a dentist. I make $400 a week. Right. I mean, who has a lawyer at, you know, 22? Right. I mean, no, nobody. I'm assuming he doesn't realize that she threw the cigarette into his car. And so- it was not her fault, that accident. Like, he hit her. <laughs> so Wait, what? You're thinking he doesn't know that that was her? I don't think he knew that that's where that cigarette came from. He was so distracted. Where would it have come from? Who knows? Where do such things come from? Could it come from anywhere? I didn't get that out of it at all. I say that that accident was not her fault. He hit her because she threw a cigarette butt into his car. Which he got distracted by. Okay. And ran off the road. He had the responsibility to control his cars. Uh, I don't think so. Someone throws something on fire into your car, like you're going to react. But you're in a convertible. Just toss it out the window. But he didn't realize it till it was like smoking in his car. I'm just saying. 
I'm he still had saying, a responsibility to control his car. She had a responsibility not to throw a lit cigarette butt into I mean, somebody's vehicle. I agree with that as well. But anyway, it was necessary to move the plot forward. So there we go. Anyway, Michael's very busy and important. He's the VP of regional programming for In Your Face TV. Right. So Michael likes her. I mean, she's cute, of course. And he's like, oh, well, just forget it. Like, let's just meet up for coffee. Decaf. Decaf. <laughs> They're going up to their apartment, Vicky and Lainey, and, oh, Troy is moving in with them. And, oops, I forgot to tell you, Lainey. He got fired. He needs a place to crash for a while. And Vicky's like, it's only until he can find a new job and get his own place. And Lainey's like, that's the American dream of the 90s. That could take years. He's going to turn this place into a den of slack, which she's not wrong. No, he, he pretty much does. Troy and Lainey argue. We learn he's in a band called Hey, That's My Bike. <laughs> Such a great band Isn't name. Isn't it? It's so good. <laughs> we find out Troy is 10 units away from a degree in philosophy with an IQ of 180. He's a smarty pants. He's a, a lazy smarty pants. And that's an interesting question, right? Like, is it just that, like, he's too cool for everything, so he's not going to bother with it? Or is it that he just wasn't willing to do the work to get the degree? I think it was both. Yeah. And part of it might just be because it's like, if I get the degree, then I'm the guy with the degree. And maybe I just don't want to be the guy with the degree. I don't need the piece of paper. And we all know that guy. At least at least I know him. <laughs> Yeah. So we cut back to the apartment and everyone's just smoking out and watching one day at a time as one does. And Vicky comes in and she's excited. She tells the gang, you guys, I got promoted to manager at The Gap. And it's exciting. And Lainey picks up that giant camcorder and starts videotaping them. Troy tells her, you're a pathological optimist. And she's like, you're just pathological. And Vicky's like, would you guys just do it already? I'm starving. Right. And then they have like this awkward, like both of them are like, oh, uh. But the sexual chemistry is there. It's it's there so much that everyone sees it. Right. They're hungry. They have the munchies. They're like, we want food. We, you know, Domino's takes a check. Like, right. <laughs> Lainey produces her daddy's gas credit card. Let's go get some snacks, kids. We're going to eat gas. <laughs> We're going to eat gas. They head down to the food mart where they gather all the Twinkies, Diet Coke, Pringles, and Chex Mix. And so much Diet Coke in this film. <laughs> You know, the reason that was written into the film was because the writer, Helen Childress, lived off of it. Right. I mean, I think there was a time when I lived off of it. I drank many a super big gulps in my day. Yep. It has all the essential vitamins and nutrients you need for the day, Katie. Right. Like, it it hurts me a little bit to think that I once did that. That's a lot of artificial sweetener. (laughs) All the calcium in your bones. It's like, no, no. This is when My Sharona plays on the radio and Vicky asks the cashier, turn it up. And they all dance. Well, everyone except Troy, because Troy's too cool. And they all dance to My Sharona in the food mart. So at the apartment, Michael arrives to pick up Lainey for their date. <laughs> Troy's like, are you a collections agent? <laughs> like his hair is all nicely done. I think he has a tie on. I don't know that we ever really see him without a tie. Yeah, I mean, he's just so... He's so everything Troy doesn't want to be. Exactly. I wrote a whole college paper on the use of music for establishing identity in Reality Bites. It's a really good paper. Did you get an A? Um, I did. Oh, nice. I did really well because like there's, it turns out there's a bunch of research for like how music is used to establish identity in films. And so. Katie, dig that out from a floppy disk and let's put that in a blog post on our website. It was a good paper and it, because it does talk about how like, even like if you look at the scene in the cars and like Lainey and Vicky are listening to Tempted by the Fruit of Another. Yeah. And then like Michael's listening to this like super loud rap music, right. you know? And so we're sort of like already seeing how different they are. And so Lainey's not ready yet for the date. And so poor Michael, like so awkward. He's trying to like make polite conversation with the group. So on their date, Lainey tells Michael that she's making a documentary about her friends. People trying to find their own identities without any role models or heroes. If that doesn't sum up Gen X, I don't know what does. It pretty much does. (laughs) And the waitress that waits on them in that scene is Helen Childress, the writer. Oh, interesting. I did not know this. Michael already is just like, what's the deal with Troy? Like, do you guys live together? Like he, he senses just from Troy's hostility from the very beginning. Like there's something going on here. 
And she's like, no, he's just staying here because he was fired for stealing a Snickers and thanks, quote, the establishment owed him a Snickers. Right. I feel like the boomers thought the Gen Xers thought the establishment did owe them a Snickers, a hypothetical Snickers. Well, so I think that you really see this later when Lainey asks her dad for money. Mm-hmm. And you really just sort of see this sort of attitude of the boomer parents being like, you just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. bootstraps and like, yeah. who cares if this isn't the job that you want to do? I think it's just a complete difference in values, right? Like, I think boomers were like, this is what needs to be done and we're going to do it. And we don't care if it's not what we want to be doing. Like the value is in the hard work. And I think Gen Xers are like, no, like I want some life satisfaction in addition to like the security of a paycheck. And so I think that they just had a really different expectation of like what you do in life and like what needs to be done and how you do it. And how you define success. I think that's a big difference too. That definition was very different generationally. Yeah. And I think that for Gen X and arguably, I think this has gotten even more so in the generations after us that like having a work-life balance And having a sense of identity sort of separate from your work became a really important thing, either an identity separate from your work or a job that really like meshed well with your identity. Right. And I don't, I don't think that that was necessarily a value of the generation before, which doesn't mean that it's wrong. I don't think it means either one was wrong. They're just really different. different. And I think also really hard for each one to understand. Yeah, I think that's fair. So this is when we see them after their date, sitting in Michael's car, and they're connecting over their love of astronomy and hatred of math. <laughs> so, Right, which is, that's quite the conundrum, right? You're like, I want to study astronomy. Oh, that's a lot of math. <laughs> I just wanted to look at the stars. Right. So this is when Peter Frampton's Baby I Love Your Way plays. And the song that was originally going to be in the film was Beth by Kiss, but they couldn't get the rights to use the song. So they settled on Baby, I Love Your Way. Interestingly, Frampton was Stiller's upstairs neighbor during filming. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. What pains me a little bit about this song is that it's supposed to be associated with Michael, right? It's supposed to be kind of cheesy and whatever, but I actually really like this song. I actually really don't like this song. I don't like Peter Frampton, though. Sorry, guys. Yeah. So I just felt like a little bit uh, like that was my dirty little secret about this movie is that I liked Michael's music. (laughs) All I know is every time the song plays on the radio, and it used to play on the radio a lot, his whole thank you before the song starts just Mm -hmm. irritates me. I don't like this song. And so these two lovebirds are connecting and they're kissing and making out and Troy walks by on the street and sees them. Right. Like ever Troy walking down the street with his guitar. About to get real. And you do see that, like, he takes a little hit, you know, like, oh. I mean, he was already a dick to Michael. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly, like, some sexual tension between him and Lainey. So this is not this is not what one wants to see when they're into a girl that they're kind of an asshole to. Yeah. <laughs> so Troy's upstairs in the apartment, and Lainey comes in, and he tells her, like, I'm picking up very strange vibes of the I just got laid variety. He says, I just would have liked to have been there to watch how you rationalize sleeping with a yuppie head cheese ball on the first date. There are actually some really great lines in this part. At some point, he says, did he wow you with his in-depth analysis of Marky Mark? (laughs) And he's the reason that Cliff Notes were invented. Yes. Say what you will about Troy and Michael. Michael just doesn't run quite as deep as Troy. Like, it's just No, he doesn't. But Michael made the choice to be able to afford a place to live. Right. Michael doesn't think the establishment owes him a Snickers. He can buy his own damn Snickers. And there's something to be said for that. There is something to be said for that. Did we establish that Michael's older? Yeah, he's definitely older. Like, I would say he's like 26, 28 Like 28 is kind of where I place him. Okay. Because he's had to have time. He's the VP of whatever. He didn't finish college though. Interesting. Now that you point that out. Yes. Um, But maybe it was also meant to show that, you know, like MTV wasn't new at that time, but 
it was still sort of a fresh sort of field where maybe somebody could work their way up without needing. So, and I mean, maybe it establishes that he's not quite the stick in the mud that we want to make him out to be, right? Like he has, he didn't necessarily follow the completely traditional path, but. Yeah, and I mean, okay, if we think about in your face TV for a moment, so it was sort of supposed to be like MTV, sort of like they wanted to move into more of the reality programming, right? Right. Well, and so, but it's also interesting because it's not as if MTV doesn't exist for these characters because at one point, Lainey says like, it's like MTV, but like fresher or cooler or something like that. And so- Like, my opinion of it was always like, oh, In Your Face is trying really hard to be like MTV, but Mm. they're also just not as innately cool as MTV was. A fun tidbit of trivia here. The original title of this film was The Real World, but they had to change it because MTV's The Real World came out. True story. True story. And according to Childress, the title Reality Bites wasn't meant to be interpreted as like reality sucks. Right. Like bites of reality. Like Right. She she meant it in terms of like sound bites, not reality sucks. It's a fun play on words though, because Yeah, it is. It can be interpreted. Both. Yeah, there you go. This is when Lainey says to Troy, why are you acting like a jealous boyfriend all of a sudden? And this is when he pulls the ultimate dick move. He gets up, cradles her face, and he says, I'm in love with you. And then he busts up laughing. Is that what you want to hear? Don't flatter yourself. So there's two ways to view this, right? So how do you view it? Do you think that that was his intention the whole time when he walked over to her? Or do you think that he chickened out after he said it and he covered it? I don't care that he's an insecure little boy. He's treating her. He is. He's treating her badly. But Oh, but he's a scared little boy, so we need to be okay with that because he has trauma. No. And this is a thing that women in their young 20s put up with and they make excuses for, and it's bullshit. We don't treat people poorly. And I know that that sounds really stupid, but I also know that we have all, we have all been victims of this. I have been a victim of it. Oh, for sure. You have been a victim of it. Every single woman has been treated poorly because of something like this. I just feel like it's just so mean. It is. It's super mean. It's it's a horrible moment. But like, I would say that like, what level of asshole you assign him is more or less depending on whether you think that was his plan all along to be like a total asshole when he walked over to her. He was mad at her. He was mad at her. But did he have a moment of like actually saying that and then being like, no, I don't believe he did because he was hurt. And when you're hurt, it's not the time you're going to go to someone and tell them, you know, confess your undying love. He wasn't going to be vulnerable to her in that moment. He was pissed at her. I don't know. Mm. I see it that way. So that could explain why we like have slightly different feelings. Yeah. So we cut to Lainey videotaping Vicky at her job and she's vulnerable by sharing like, you know what? I'm proud to have been made manager. She's doing a really good job. And you get the sense that this is the first time she's felt really proud of herself. I don't know. I loved it because even though it's a job that Lainey clearly thinks is ridiculous, she did it. And she did it by working for the man. So we cut to like a video confessional of Troy and his goatee. His hair is so greasy. (laughs) So greasy. I don't know. That greasy hair movement of the 90s was not attractive. Not even on Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke could barely pull that off. And don't you wonder, like, was he enough of a method actor that, like, it really was his greasy hair and not done by, like, hair and makeup? No, I'm sure that was just some (laughs) greasy-ass hair. So we learned his parents divorced at five years old, and he saw his dad, like, three times a year after that. And this is when we get a deep Troy Dyer moment, a Troyism, if you will. Quote, life is a random lottery of meaningless tragedies in a series of near escapes. So, Kate, he takes pleasure in simple details like a quarter pounder with cheese and same. As much as I love like the deep thinking, cool guys, I'm not a fan of this particular scene because it's like so cliched. Like it's just too much. Yeah. So this is when we see Vicky at the health clinic to get an AIDS test. One of her friends tested positive and she's scared. This was actually a really important moment in the film because this was really happening in the 90s. When you had to wait two weeks from the time you had your blood drawn for an HIV test, and then you had to go back to get the results. Results. Lainey's at work and we learn that Grant thinks her stuff is junk and 
she gets pissed and she messes with his cards and she ends up getting fired. Like, of course she does. Right. But what, and I mean, she should not have done that. No. But at the same time, he's such a jerk. This is sort of what it is to work in the real world. Like often, especially in your first job, you work with people who don't respect you because you're young and she's female in this industry and he doesn't care about her and he's got a massive ego. And right. I mean, she does essentially like cut off her nose to spite her face. Absolutely. But I would never have done something like that because I'm much too much of a rule follower. Mm -hmm. So it's not shocking that she gets fired. Back at the apartment, she tells the gang that she got fired. And Vicky's like, oh, my God, like, I can totally help you with this. I'm looking for someone at work. Like, you can you can take a job part-time and look for something else in your field. And Lainey's so, like, ugh. I'm not going to work at the Gap, for God's sake. <laughs> and Vicky's insulted. Of course she is. It would have been one thing if she'd been like, thanks, Vicky. Like, I think I'm going to see if there's anything in my field, but like, I really appreciate it. No, she like had so much disdain. Like, I'm not going to work at the Gap. Right. Uh, like, this is not what I went to school for. I'm much more talented right. than the Gap. I mean, she could have gotten a job at like the body shop or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sling some cucumber melon body lotion. Yeah. This is when Troy takes her on a walking tour of all of his former jobs. And Katie, there's 12 of them. Which is impressive for a 22-year-old. About this scene, this is what Ryder said. She's like, I remember for some reason I was just having a really bad day and I can't remember why. And it was the only time that Ben got kind of like stern with me. And he took me aside and was like, what's going on? Get it together. And I needed it. I remember having a moment of, oh God, I hope I... And then just sort of knowing I was in good hands. And it's interesting because this is a really important scene in the film. And uh, I feel like this is one of the most vulnerable moments we see of Troy up to this point. All of the other parts of Troy, you're kind of like, okay, he's good looking and he's angsty and he's deep, but he's also kind of an asshole. So you don't really get that foundation of their friendship. But here you do really see that they do have a friendship and that they have this kind of like fun banter back and forth. This is when Troy gives the famous line, like, this is all we need. A couple of smokes, a cup of coffee, and a little bit of conversation. You and me and five bucks. And I mean, I remember being young and really, it didn't take much. And at the fountain, this is where they kiss. And Lainey stops it. She's like, no, I can't not be friends with you. The part that I find bothersome about Troy's timing in this moment is that it's so classic of this type of guy to be like, I'm not going to be emotionally available. I'm going to kind of like, like you, but sort of stay away. But man, the second another guy is into into you, I'm going to be right there. And now, now is my time. Now is when I choose. He tells her like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about evolving. Why can't you? Is it because of Michael? And she says, yeah, it is. So you're right. He chose his moment because now he's afraid of losing her. Because now he's like, oh, there's competition. Oh, somebody else is into her. Like, she's not mine for whenever I want. Mm -hmm. On Lainey's video confessional, we learned that her parents divorced when she was 14 and her dad remarried six months later. And her mom threatened to kill herself in front of her. And her sister was drinking. And so she basically had to take on the parental role in her family. This is kind of the problem because even though Lainey doesn't have it all figured out, She really does run the risk in this relationship, if she's going to have one with Troy, of being the parental figure, being the responsible one, being the caretaker for the guy who can't seem to get his shit together. Yeah, there's definitely like that distinction between the two. In Vicky's video confessional, we learn that she doesn't want to get married. Her parents have been married for 26 years, and they're basically brother and sister now. She goes on this rant about like, oh my God, my mom uses a bathroom with the door open. I'm like, shit, I do that. I go pee in front of my girlfriends with the door open. I have no shame when it comes to peeing in front of your partner. Who cares? There are people who feel really strongly about like keeping the mystery alive between them and their partner. Like my house is too small. In the background is David Anthony Perner from Soul Asylum. Yes. Now we're in a hotel room. Michael and Lainey are there. And Michael says, hey, Lainey, I think your documentary would be a great fit for In Your Face TV. 
she's kind of unsure. He's like, well, I'm going to New York for a network meeting. Like, I'd love to talk to them about it. And she's like, uh, uh, and she's hesitant. Because she doesn't want to unintentionally commercialize it by knowing where it's going to go before it's finished. Right. That would be wrong. We then see a montage of Lainey just going to interview after interview, trying to get a job. And when she's at the newspaper and she's asked to define irony, the woman (laughs) asking her is actually Ben Stiller's mother and Mira. So we see Lainey home with her mom and her stupid stepdad, and she has to ask for money. She tells them, like, I need money. There's nothing in my field. And her mom's like, why don't you get a job at Burgerama? Hmm. And this is when we see David Spade as the manager of Schnitzel, right? Lainey's depressed. She's defeated. She goes home. She starts smoking and watching In Your Face TV for hours. This is when she sees the advertisement for the Psychic Friends Network and calls. And the psychic she's talking to is actually voiced by Ben Stiller's real-life sister, Amy Stiller. Oh, interesting. Anyway, she's on the phone so long with the psychic that she's ending up like giving the psychic advice. Right. (laughs) I think you still really love Monty. (laughs) (laughs) She's glued to the couch, just smoking and smoking and smoking. And Vicky and Sammy basically have an intervention with her. And they're like, "Um, we have a $406 phone bill. Like, you have got to get off the phone. Get off the couch. Go do something. This is my favorite part when I'm watching this in COVID times. And Vicky, like, (laughs) calls her out for what she's doing. And I'm like, we are all Laney in COVID times. Because this is what she says. You're laying on the couch all day. Those pajamas are like a uniform. You run up a $400 phone bill. Okay, like hopefully we're not doing that. Um, You watch TV. You chain smoke. Also, please don't chain smoke. You don't go outside. You don't do anything. Okay, yeah, that's kind of the last year. (laughs) Summed up right there. They had no idea. That was some foreshadowing. They really didn't know. And she's pretty sure that Vicky's like reveling in her failure. Right. She's kind of like, she's sort of gone off the deep end at this point. And she like thinks that her friends are happy that she's in this situation. And so she's now at her dad's work and her dad's like, the problem with your generation is you don't have any work ethic. He wants her to go out there and show some ingenuity. So she does. I don't think this is what he meant, but (laughs) (laughs) this is where Lainey gets a bright idea that, hey, I'm going to go to a gas station and I'm going to take people's cash for gas and I'm going to charge their gas on my dad's credit card. It was funny, like the gas attendant kept coming out with like the the carbon thing for her to sign. Right. (laughs) Like, oh my God, yeah. Theoretically, the credit card company would have been like, nope. Red flag, fraud. Like right. you're charging some fraud way too much gas on this credit card. Right. And she's buying all of her groceries. <laughs> yeah. Troy comes home with Janine and he and Lainey get in a fight because he's not even trying to work and he didn't show up for the interview that her dad arranged. And hey, Katie, Troy has principles. He's not going to spend the next 20 years working on the line and end up with, what did he say? Tumors in his balls. Right. Because his dad's dying of prostate cancer. Yeah. I don't know. Like, he's young. He's angsty. I guess I can kind of understand where he's coming from. Well, it's funny because Lainey's so frustrated with him. And she's like, the world doesn't owe you any favors. But at the same time, Lainey's kind of conducting herself like the world owes her some favors. She just asked for a lot of favors. And she has no problem taking from her dad. But like, I can't compromise my principles to work the gap. So yeah, I mean, they're sort of like the same. They are. Vicky takes Lainey for a walk where they just go and complain about Troy and they end up in a coffee shop. And this is where we learn that Vicky's like really scared about getting her AIDS test results. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Well, because you get the sense of like, it's been so hard for Vicky without Lainey. You know, she's feeling vulnerable. So I like this moment too. And this is where Lainey gets a phone call at the restaurant. And, oh, my God, Michael's calling her from New York. And he ended up taking her tapes and showing them to the execs. And they loved it. And they want to buy it. And I'm kind of surprised she's not mad. Is she not mad just because she's so desperate for money at this point? She just needs money. Because otherwise, she would have probably been kind of pissed, yeah? I think she was flattered that he liked it so much. I think now, again, like with this sort of central question, we sort of see that when you do need the practicalities of life enough, you're sort of like, oh, okay, great. But I also think she doesn't fully understand the implications 
yeah. of what this means that, right. you know, they're a big organization and she's not going to be able to say how it goes. Yeah. And so Michael's like, oh my God, they're both so excited. He's like, I love you. You amaze me. And she's like, oh my God, he said, I love you. And she's like, I miss you. He says like, I love you. And then he's like, oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't really mean to. Uh, and then he says, you amaze me. We get a little scene. You know, Sammy doesn't have much of a role in this film. Right. He was in the trailer a lot. Yeah. In interviews, Ben Stiller had said, in the script, we had to kind of narrow it down to the Laney-Troy relationship. There were a lot of other stories going on in the script. And so Sammy's part really got cut down. We yeah. see that he comes out to his mom and he tells the camera in his confessional that he just came out and and he felt like he had to because he can't really start his life without being honest about who he is. Right. Which honestly, I think that that line is one of the most profound lines I do too. of the entire movie because I literally wrote in my notes, same, <laughs> because yeah, like it's really hard to go forward in your life trying to be somebody you think people want you to be instead of being who you are. And I can only imagine that when that involves sharing with your parents that news that they're maybe not going to be super excited about, that that's even harder. Yeah. Yeah. And there's part of me that idealistically wants to believe like in this day and age that that's not as big a deal, but I know that it still is. I know yeah. that it's still a huge challenge for so many people. Yeah. And at the apartment, Michael arrives to pick up Lainey for the premiere party for her show. And again, it's awkward between he and Troy. And this is where Lainey walks in in that gorgeous white crochet dress and her black Mary Janes. And it is just iconic. But Troy's like, what happened to your normal clothes? And Michael's like, wow, where'd you get that dress? You look, and Troy says, like a doily, which is a funny line, but really terrible. <laughs> it's a dick move because even he, I'm sure, thought Lainey looked beautiful. He had to take her down a notch. Right. Who are you trying to be, Lainey? I think it's that he does think she's beautiful and he has to deflect that feeling Michael's line, what's your glitch, irritates me. I, I don't like that line. I don't feel like anyone actually says that or ever said that. But see, I think it's a good line because it does sort of highlight that he's like so not cool. And then there's conflict and Michael's like, you've got this whole thing with the world. And he tells Lainey, let's just go. You don't need this. And Troy's like, you don't know what she needs. And he says, I know what she needs in a way that you never will. Right. It's an intense scene. They're both kind of right in their own ways, right? Troy knows what she needs in certain ways and Michael knows what she needs in other ways. At the premiere party, Michael tells Lainey like, oh, they just put like some titles on your doc and, you know, they shaped it a little bit. And then we see her documentary against social distortion story of my life. And they call it Reality Bites. And there's all these horrible out of context sound bites and lots of like hokey transitional animation and graphics and sound effects. And it's really cheesy. There's lots of music in this. Like they make the music match the scenes. Like at the end, like when they're walking out of graduation and they're playing like we're on the road to nowhere. Yeah. Like it's just so cheesy. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, this is not in the spirit of, you know, her vision of this project. It's so bad. Like the thing with like the rhinos having sex, like, like you can't blame And their her. faces on a pizza. Like, yeah, it was pretty awful. And so she's pissed and she leaves and Michael chases after her and he's like, I care about you and I want to make you happy. And he's trying to appease her and she leaves him. And Lainey comes home and Troy's there and Troy's like, how did the premiere go? This is when she says, I was really going to be somebody by the age of 23. And he tells her, honey, all you have to be by the age of 23 is yourself. And she says, I don't know who that is anymore. And this is the moment. He right. says, I do. And I love her. She breaks my heart again and again, but I love her. Kitty. How does Lainey break his heart again and again? If anything, Troy's breaking her heart again he and again. He confessed his interest in pursuing a relationship with her, and she pretty much shut him down. She's dating, like, the antithesis of him. Unlike Troy, though, she didn't mock him or call his bravado stupid. She wasn't mean to him. She was saying, our friendship is too important to me. 
I don't want to ruin what we have. I still think that's heartbreaking. It's not an asshole move, but it's heartbreaking to have somebody say, I don't have the same feelings for you that you have for me. She's been honest with him in a way that true friends are honest with each other and they tell each other things that aren't always comfortable, but she's never been unkind. Whereas he has been. I think that you're equating breaking somebody's heart with being unkind. I've had people break my heart in like the kindest way possible. And it's still heartbreaking. Yeah. Okay. So they hug, they kiss, they have sex. And in the morning, she hugs him and... He's like already on his way out the door. (laughs) 8.24 a.m. Troy Dyer is no early riser. Okay. It's 8.24 in the morning and he has to go because he has band rehearsal. Right. It's so awkward. She's so hurt. We cut to Troy's band playing at the bar. Vicky tells Lainey, sex is the quickest way to ruin a friendship. Right. And Sam's like, say it isn't true. So Michael shows up at the bar and he apologizes to Lainey. He wants to make it up to her with like plane tickets to fly to New York to show the executives the documentary the way Lainey had intended it. She doesn't know what to do with this. And Troy joins them and shakes Michael's hand and says to Lainey, are you going to tell him or am I? I don't mean to be defending Troy all the time. but Well, you're doing it a lot. I know. But in all fairness to him, he wanted to have a conversation with Lainey. And then all of a sudden, Michael's there. He could have had a conversation with Lainey in the morning at 824 before he bolted because he got scared because he's never had sex with someone that he cared about before. Man, you're harsh. (laughs) They're at the bar at night. It was 8.24 in the morning at all damn day. This is why you never like the guys I date. (laughs) Okay, that's not true. (laughs) So he is going to talk to her and he gets a phone call, which is the news that his dad is going to die. He can't go talk to her right that second because he has to deal with this phone call, which is understandably devastating news. Then he comes back over now he's like in this like super emotionally raw state and now like his arch nemesis is there so does he react well no I'm not going to defend that he doesn't react well at all but I don't think that he just wanted to talk to her because Michael was there he was planning to talk to her he got diverted by the phone call it was very upsetting news and we all know that he's not emotionally mature so he's not going to handle it was he really going to talk to her and have a deep conversation I think he was going to apologize so Lainey takes Troy aside to talk and she's like, you bailed on me. And he's like, I panicked. He's like, I'm sorry, Lelena, but you can't navigate me. I might do mean things and I might hurt you and I might run away without your permission and you might hate me forever. And I know that scares the shit out of you because I'm the only real thing you have. This bothers me because he's like, I might do X, Y, and Z and be the shittiest kind of person. But I know that scares you because I'm the only real thing you have. She has her friends. She has her talent. She has herself. Right. Like there's definitely some gaslighting going on there. When she tells him that ain't real much, he gets up on stage all angry and he dedicates Violet Femmes added up to her. Right. Which is totally a dick move. move. Yeah. For sure. And so she runs out of the bar. Michael and Troy chase after her. Outside of the bar, Michael and Troy talk and Michael compares him to a court jester. (laughs) Like so awkwardly. He's like, you're, you're the guy with the hat and the bells and, and you're over there in clever, clever land. <laughs> and then Troy's sort of like, none of that matters because everybody dies alone. And Michael's like, if you really think that's true, what are you doing here? And this is when Michael just throws down the plane tickets into the street. And then we never see Michael again, right? I wrote down a note like, I guess she wasn't worth fighting for. He could have tried a little harder. I think that the truth is that Michael is not the right person for Lainey. Whether Troy is or not. He's not. Is one question. But like, I don't think it's Troy or Michael. Like, I think that Michael ultimately is not the right person for her. And this is when we see Greasy Troy at the airport. And you two's All I Want Is You plays. And and then we get the great, you know, alone montage. Lainey's smoking. She's doing laundry, staring at a ceiling. So Lainey catches up with Sammy at the diner. She's like, I just need to know if he's okay. And we learn that Troy went back to Chicago to see his dad. And of course, she's not supposed to know that. And so she rushes home to like throw clothes in a bag. She's going to rush off to the airport to go to Chicago. She misses her cab. Or so she thinks. 
So Troy suddenly appears in a very, very baggy brown suit. I guess it's like his, it's like it was his daddy's suit, his poor deceased father. He's looking schlubby and not so great. This is what I don't like. This is probably the moment that you do like. He's so meek and so mild and so humbled and profoundly changed. He was like, um, even his voice. I was just wondering if I could talk to you for a minute before you go. My dad died. I have this planet of regret on my shoulders. And he wishes he could go back to that morning after they slept together. And he wants to tell her that he loves her and make that really clear. And they kiss and they hug. And that's not enough. It's not enough for me. But is it enough for a beginning? I mean, maybe it's enough for them to be able to begin a friendship again. But they don't. They are now in a romantic relationship. They kiss and they hug. And then we cut to sometime later. They're in the apartment with moving boxes. And he's sitting on the couch playing guitar like a lazy loaf. And again, she is busy doing things and then sits down to join him. So then her dad calls and leaves a message about a $900 credit card bill. The end. So it actually wasn't that much later. It was probably like 30 days later because he got the bill. (laughs) Because he got the bill. Right. It ended way too tidy. And just because his dad has passed and he's had a change of heart, now he's a different man, remains to be seen. I mean, I would agree that moving in with him was probably not, well, I mean, technically they were living together already, but um, was probably, you know, like being like, oh, everything's hunky-dory and we're just going to go forward from here. So I'm going to have to like hearken back to our Sleepless in Seattle discussion. Do you think that there was magic between Lainey and Troy? I never saw magic between Lainey and Troy. I saw sexual chemistry. You don't think they loved each other? I don't really know. So maybe this is why we have such a vastly different interpretation. What I see is that they love each other. I'm not defending that he's not an asshole throughout much of the film. He totally is. But that when you love someone, you do sometimes have a broader level of understanding for shitty behavior. Okay. Now, should it be that way? I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't be. I think it's really easy right after Troy's dad died and he had a complicated relationship with his dad to be like, I'm vulnerable. I'm lonely. I want my life to be different from here on out. And I believe that a death really does have the power to change, you know, someone in really, really big and lasting ways. I just feel like that kind of remains to be seen. It does, because now we have to see what happens the first time Lainey does something that rubs Troy the wrong way. Does he go back to being an asshole? Because if he does, then no. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. The movie has to end at some point. Right. Go on forever. Um, but Reality Bites reunion. The well, reboot. Okay. So I said, I need a part two. <laughs> These people are now 50 years old. Okay. How'd that happen? I mean, this is the other thing. Do you believe that at the end of the movie, they live happily ever after? Because I don't. I believe that they date and they have a relationship. And then he goes on to meet a nice girl on a train. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Before sunrise. I love it. So I said, like, did they get married? Did they get divorced? Did Troy end up a rock star or a guy working on the line? Are they still making payments on their student loans? And do they have a kid that's 23 now? Yeah, I don't think that they ended up together. Like, I don't think that that, but I do think that for that time in their life, they probably did spend at least, you know, six months to a couple of years together. Well, I would buy into it much more if we subscribe to the fact that they didn't end up happily ever after. I think it was meant to represent like this moment in your life where you're trying to figure things out and... And so she does, she makes this choice between like Michael and Troy. My hope is that like, unless Troy really redeems himself, that at some point she realizes like, oh, there's this middle ground. There's this person who isn't Michael, isn't Troy and is a good fit. And there's magic and stability. And I mean, I'm still looking for him, but I have faith. (laughs) Well, I found an article by Gina Radcliffe of The Spool, written in 2019. She says that, alas, it seems to be pretty serious in its message of staying true to yourself, even if your friends are stuck supporting your shiftless, lazy ass. Troy and Lelena deserved each other, and Generation X deserved better. What do you think? Do you think this was an accurate depiction of this time in a young Gen Xer's life? 
I mean, so I think it depends on what kind of Gen Xer you are, right? Because like, if one were even to look at the two of us, and we're pretty close in terms of life experiences, right? We grew up on the same street, went to the same schools. Yeah. But what felt true to what I wanted was very different from the path that most people Yeah went down. And so I don't know, I guess that's an interesting question, right? Like, if you're being true to what you want, and what you want is something traditional, that doesn't make you a sellout. But for me to have had that life, it would have have made me a sellout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in terms of the legacy of this film, Childress is funny, because she said, like, to be honest, I often forget that I wrote it, that she wrote this (laughs) film. She's like, it just doesn't come up. I remember one day, and this was years ago, I was in Barnes and Noble and Stay by Lisa Loeb came on the sound system. It was just one of those moments. I was like, oh yeah, I fucking wrote that movie. But it was sort of <laughs> off the map at that time. No one was really talking about it. There wasn't a 90s nostalgia yet. I went on to read interviews where she's like, it's just sort of like going back and reading like old stuff you wrote or like a diary entry from a long time ago. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess I, I guess I wrote that, but like, I'm a really different person now. Right. And speaking of Lisa Loeb's stay, the soundtrack was a big success. It sold 1.2 million units and reached number 13 on the Billboard 200. Lisa Loeb actually at the time, she was the first unsigned artist to ever have a number one single. And it's because she and Ethan Hawke were friends. And Hawke said, she recorded that song, Stay. And I thought, man, I sent it to Ben because when I heard it, I just really felt like it was perfect for the film. And he completely agreed. And Ethan Hawke actually ended up directing the music video for Lisa Loeb's Stay. At the 25th anniversary screening of Reality Bites in 2019, Stiller said, quote, I have so many emotional feelings right now. It's emotional for me to hear the movie with an audience, to hear your reactions, to feel it together, and to still be here 25 years later. I think it's just a slice of what life was like for a lot of people in in that time. I do have to say that it does make me happy she ends up with Troy. (laughs) Even if it's only for six months after this. Even if it's only for a little while. Like, I just want him to have that little bit of time to explore it. And if it's a disaster, get out of there. But does the friendship remain? I think, yeah. We'll see. I mean, we won't see. We will never know. We'll never know. You get to decide. You decide. (laughs) Choose your own adventure. (laughs) Right. Thanks so much for joining us. If you can't wait to hear more, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And just a friendly reminder, we're on the interwebs at theuntitledgenxpodcast.com. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.